You are listening to A Minute of Your Time, a podcast helping entrepreneurs illegally protect their passion and profits. I am Shay M. Lawson Esquire, your host, and I am an IP attorney with over 10 years of experience helping entrepreneurs and entertainment professionals legally protect and scale their businesses to the next level. And that is exactly what this podcast is all about. On each and every episode, I will give you tips and resources for you to be able to grow your profits and protect and create a legacy that is one that you will have for generations with your business. I will pull stories from the headlines and we will also have a social minute that as we grow and impact our businesses, we are also growing and impacting our communities and taking just a minute to be the change we want to see around us. I'm so happy to have you here. If you have not subscribed yet, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're on Anchor FM, drop me a voice note. Without any further ado, let's go ahead and hop on into this week's episode. Welcome to episode 29 of A Minute of Your Time. This is a really cool episode. I'll talk about it a little bit once I have my guest join me, but this is a dual podcast. So make sure that you click the link in the show notes because you will absolutely want to hear the interview that I give uh, talking about my journey and Facebook and music and the entertainment industry and buying your masters. I talk about all of that when my guest interviews me on his podcast. So make sure that you click the link in the show notes and check it out. But let me tell you who my guest of this episode is. So today I am being joined by King Williams. King is a multimedia documentary film director, journalist, and author who is based here in Atlanta, Georgia. King is actually a former intern of Spike Lee and also served as an associate producer on the documentary that you can actually go on pbs.org and watch called East Lake Meadows that was done by Sarah Burns, who is the daughter of the famed documentarian Kim Burns. So King has such a wide and uh, deep swath of knowledge that I asked him to come join me for a conversation behind the lens and making that journey from Spike Lee intern to directing your own film, from having that creative work to bootstrapping your equipment and your crew and your finances to literally make your own project come alive. And I thought this would be so useful for you guys in my audience that fall into that bucket of creatives and 
I, it's such a great conversation that we have. And if you listen to my previous episode with Steve Allen, and we talked about his journey going from the music industry to TV and film, where he works behind the scenes as a producer and doing visual effects and graphic design, and also as voiceover talent, and how that was such an easy and smooth transition, although the road was very windy. King shares a similar story in this episode where he is going to share his journey from film and still very much in the film industry now, but how that eventually bridged its way into journalism and writing. And he has written for the Supporter Report and is a contributor for the New York Times. And so for all of my entrepreneurs who are listening to this episode, we are going to talk about what makes something newsworthy. So once we talk about his journey into journalism and writing and even in film, what makes something worth documenting? What and, and what does that mean from a journalistic standpoint? And how can you as an entrepreneur who also not just wanting to get your business or your services in the media and known, but maybe you want to position yourself as um, an ally to the media, being a thought leader, presenting quotes, information, um, being an expert to the public. And so how do you make those connections? How do you make yourself and make Maybe your services and your business newsworthy. We are going to cover all of that. We are also just one week away from the Georgia Senate elections that are going off. These are the runoff elections. And for our social minute this week, we are going to talk about the work that King is doing to support those who are at the polls, who um, are there and may be experiencing long waits and the organizing that he's done around ensuring that every vote is counted. We know that this election is so important, not just for the state of Georgia, but could largely dictate um, the power dynamics in the United States Congress and also the effectiveness of a Biden administration. So we are going to talk about that in our social minute. We'd love for you to get involved and support if this touches on your heartstrings. And last but not least, we are going to have a little fun moment and chat about Clubhouse because that's obviously where everybody and everything is right now. So there's so many goodies in this episode. Can't wait to dive in. So I will not hold it up any longer. Um, I want to do a few things to just level set the episode for everyone. So number one, if you are listening to this and you feel like, hey, this is really awkward. What is Shay talking about? King and I did dual episodes of our podcast that will play back to back. So you can go click in the show notes and expand and click the link and you can hear my episode that I just did with King about the entertainment industry and what I think the big story of 2021 is and um, how I thought I was going to go into politics. So if you're interested in hearing a conversation like that, because you are and you love me and you're here anyway, go visit and click the link. And so now I have asked King to come on to the show and I really, he has such a robust background to give you guys the backstory of King and I, we actually met via a run group um movers and pacers here in atlanta you can follow them on instagram at movers and pacers and i was always really really excited to talk to king because it's like i run him down to talk politics because there's just so few people you can have a really robust conversation about politics with and little did i know 
He had done a whole documentary and a film project and he has a book club and he writes and he does all of these really, really cool things. And it covers a lot of the genres that I talk about here. And I really wanted to have the opportunity to speak with him today from a behind the scenes standpoint, both um, as a journalist and as a, a filmmaker and currently as an organizer um, in the midst of a very contentious Georgia runoff campaign um, about things that I, I thought would be relevant to you guys. So uh, without any further ado, I'm gonna hop into the interview. King, thank you, thank you, thank you again for being here. Can you share the people, share with the people a brief breakdown of who you are and what you do. Uh, yeah, King Williams, I am a documentary filmmaker and a journalist and a author as of 2021. I'm from Atlanta, born and raised. Um, I spent a lot of time also in my adult life living uh, in and out of New York City. I used to work as an intern turned assistant for Spike Lee, and I worked on a bunch of other film and television projects up in New York City. Um, I moved back down to Atlanta not a few, a few years ago to take care of my aunt. Um, she is my number one priority in addition to all the other jobs that I have. But you may, most people know me right now, either through like from what you were saying, Shay, which is uh, my time um, doing a documentary called The Atlanta Way, a documentary on gentrification. That actually came out 10 years ago. It was a series of shorts that I did um, about gentrification as related to Atlanta, more specifically around public housing and the closing of what that has happened. Um, it's gonna be coming out again next year as an update 10 years later, looking at what Atlanta is now. And it's gonna be a total history of gentrification from the beginning. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I am also a podcast host of a podcast called The Neighborhood Watch, which is a podcast interviewing people in Atlanta like Shay. Um, it's gonna be, it's an intersection of people who are moving and shaking in Atlanta. And I just thought it was a really important thing to do. It's an extension of my documentary, Atlanta Way, um, which is why it's called The Neighborhood Watch. And also, you may start reading me next year. You'll see a, a series of guest hosts in the New York Times uh, for me, as well as the Supporter Report here in Atlanta, which is a more local on the ground government and reporting issue, um, a periodical here in Atlanta rather. And you also will see me on a, a new venture called Local Plus, which is uh, Local Plus. So it's essentially local news media from people like myself, people who are more on the ground, who can give you day-to-day play-by-plays. Uh, we actually start today, December 21st, so for a lot of people who are getting their superpowers today, you will also be able to listen to me talk about news and politics as well. And so I'm really excited for all of those things. Let's start there. What superpower did you wake up with today? I woke up with the power of Jesus or oh, the power of God, but um, the power I really wanted, I didn't get, but you know, maybe it'll come again. You know, I'm waiting, you know, it's a little delayed this year. So are you, are you willing to share with the audience what you hoped for? Okay, so uh, <laughs> and we're talking about, here's the thing. I didn't pick one superpower like some people did. I picked a, a whole character. So the character I picked uh, was Dr. Manhattan out of The Watchmen because he can basically do everything. So I was like, I want to be that person. So I, I want a character who has no limitations. So that's who I picked. <laughs> okay, well, there it is. I haven't, I haven't seen The Watchmen. I heard that it was pretty good. Um, I literally just finished Lovecraft Country and I'm shooketh to my core, so I'm not ready to move on. You should. They're like a, they're actually like a low-key, like a spiritual brother and sister to each other. I think you should watch both. Okay, when I'm emotionally ready to move on, that's what I'll move on to next. Because I was actually gonna move on to um the undoing. The, uh, lots of people are talking about the undoing. Yeah, I, I haven't watched that one yet. I'm, I'm gonna give a, a, a plus to Watchmen first. Uh, 
don't read anything on it because there's the movie Watchmen and the TV show Watchmen. I would say watch the TV show of it. Okay. But don't read anything on it. It's definitely not gonna be where you think it is. Okay. All right. I will I will take your advice on that. And so speaking of film and TV, you talked about um, the Atlanta way and working on that. And I know that that was just a journey. And a lot of the entrepreneurs that I am speaking to in my audience are creative entrepreneurs, whether they're music, TV, film, online entrepreneurship. Can you walk us a bit behind, not the cool, glitzy, glamoury, oh, I did this viewing. This is how I came up with the artwork. This is how I came up with the shots. I, I don't want to hear that. What <laughs> I am looking for here is how did you assemble your crew? What kind of agreements did you make? How did you find funding? Give me the, the backbone of how you made this from idea to reality. You know what, actually great. I can give you that story in three different projects that I worked on. The first was the Atlanta way, which is I learned a lot more about indie filmmaking from that. And that whole process is actually kind of what got me to Spike Lee. Um, and so I was doing a lot of people like myself who had just came out of college, right? And so that was, I knew there's a couple of things I knew. I, I knew one that we needed uh, non-disclosure agreements within the crew so people wouldn't, you know, give out the information. I also knew we needed waivers, right? So that's all I knew legally. I knew that that's what you needed in all movies. I don't know why I knew that. I just knew it. But how I ran up the crew was simple. I did this thing where I looked at everybody who was at my former college, Georgia State University. I was like, all right, who's the best? I made a list. I legit made a list. And um, I remember I was being in the cafeteria of our um, of our student center and it was December. I remember this because I was about to graduate and I found me and two other people I was going to graduate with and I was like, hey, you know, would you guys be interested in working on a documentary with me? They had never worked on anything like that and it was like, all right, cool, we'll work with you. And so we were sitting in that in December and by January we had a full crew and the way we did it was we made a list. All right, who's the best photographer at our school? Who's the, the kid who works um, in the AV department? And then we made a list like knowing that everyone will say no, right? So I was like, hey, me and my two partners, one was a girl named Carrie and another one was a guy named Zettler. And I was like, hey, I want to approach these five or six people. Um, we got no's from most of those people. But then the ones who did, when they came, they that became the crew. Gave them like the spiels like, hey, you know, this is a crew. We're not making any money right now. This is, you know, what this thing is. And then we had already drew up. It wasn't binding, but I already drew up with a contract with saying like, hey, this is, you know, a documentary. This is what we're doing. And they everybody was with it. Everybody got down with it. And so within two months we ended up interviewing like 60 people everyone including like the future mayor the future mayor's competitor um and so that entire sourcing of the crew though and i'll be clear we also had to use a lot of equipment from other people so when you shoot a film when you don't have money and you don't have money for a crew i knew through college a lot of kids either were getting their stuff directly from the school they had their own stuff a lot of kids in the av department had their own cameras their own whatever so finding people who already had the resources first was important to me. The second thing was I didn't even have a car then. So I had to find every single aspect of it because in order to get something done, I had to rely on other people. And then having to explain to other people what the end goal was. The end goal was to have the film played. Um, and that didn't fully happen. I can get into that later if you want to. But me and how I managed it is what managed to keep everybody on board with the project, even when some people had to leave because you know they got jobs, they went on to grad school and things like that because we set an expectation that, hey, this is the film, this is how we're gonna to try to put it together, this is what we're gonna do. And we end up touring around it, uh, around different spots in Atlanta, different clubs, bars, restaurants, libraries, whatever, getting the word out. And this is like right as like, you know, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter are like really getting in scale. 
Um, and But we didn't have that audience. We were still doing a lot of grassroots kind of activities. And so that really is, I figured out how to build an audience, how to build a crew, how to resource things when you have no money. Um, yeah. And then journalism. So this is the part that's super important. So like I said, the Atlanta way brought me to Spike. And the reason why is because one member of the crew, she had dropped out of college to work on political campaigns. Like I told you before, we figured out how to source and tour and she figured out she's much better at that than in school. Um, so much so that she's working on Raphael Warnock's campaign right now. I'm not gonna give out her name, but this you all, she's good at, she didn't just drop out and like left. She's like, she's a professional. So she's really good at this. Um, but one of the things she was uh, saying was, we, I reached a point in the documentary where I just didn't have enough skills, right, as a filmmaker. So sometimes you have to know when you don't. And she saw that Spike Lee had joined Twitter. His assistant had got on. And so he accidentally posted his assistant's real email address. She took it. And then she built an entire campaign around me for the next two and a half months for me to become his intern. And so we, it relied on people, everyone else, not me, though. Everyone else ran from teachers to family members to people I worked with, kids at school, whoever, or people I went to school with to tweet, call, email on my behalf, right? And so when that got me to Spike, um, that got me to Spike Lee. And then I spent the next four and a half, five years living in New York City. And so what I learned like was the back end. I didn't even really work on set that much outside like being like the assistant. What I wanted to learn was like the business side of it. So I worked a lot in the accounting, the payroll department, mm -hmm. uh, the production office to see how things move around. And I knew when I came back to Atlanta, I would get back into film. And when I came back, I thought I was gonna get right back into it. Then I ended up working on a place that was like a quasi uh, nonprofit slash like connected to just like, I don't, I don't know what to call it NGO, but it's connected to a lot of people in government here in Atlanta. And that led me to the East Lake Meadows project uh, by Ted, by, that was done by uh, Sarah Burns, the daughter of Ken Burns. And so when I came back, I came back with a much different perspective on how to work a budget out, how to work resourcing out, how to like get gather a crew in Atlanta, how to get money, how to move things around. So when I got to Ken Burns, it was like, it was essentially like I went to, to school and grad school for film and the masters. And then when I came back, I was in a much different playing field. Um, and so the behind the scenes of it is when you're doing a documentary on a professional level, like Ken Burns now, you're doing a lot of the same skills. You're trying to find people the best for the money that you set, because let's say you have, I'm not gonna say the budget of the Ken Burns documentary, but let's say it was like, hypothetically a half a million dollars. You gotta figure out from start to end, how do you budget? It's a small business. How do you open up a small business with exactly half a million dollars, not one cent over, if they count for every single dollar and to make deliverables to get it out in a certain point in time, you work with a group of people. Um, and so that was really great. It was a great experience. And then the thing is doing, doing that, people just knew me from doing documentaries. They knew me from working in New York. They knew me from doing talks on things. And then somebody was just like, hey, would you, and that same girl was like, hey, uh, who got me to Kim Burns? She's like, I want you to meet somebody. And so I met with somebody. Uh, Maria Supporta, and she was like, hey, would you be interested in being a writer here? She's like, I don't normally do this because I didn't go to journalism school, but she's like, I've seen you write some things before I did. I have wrote some things like just here and there. And from then on, it just like literally within two years. So within two years, I was a non-professional writer at all. And so I went from somebody who never wrote professionally, but who had a lot of good skills behind the scenes and sourcing, building things together, how to historically site check and fact check things. And that led me to like now being at the New York Times within like two years, right? But the behind the scenes of it is, as much as people talk about like, oh, I did this, I did that. It's not really like that. The thing that actually gets you on is how fast you can move um, and how accurate you can move. I think one of the things that we've, we've kind of forgotten in this Twitter age is when you're doing documentaries or just traditional journalism, it has to be accurate and more than fast. And as much as we kind of think that fast is the thing, it has to be accurate. So when people read my newsletter, read my writing, they understand it's factually correct every single time it comes out. And I so, 
that. Just I want to I want to stop you there. I want to stop you there. You've hit on a bunch of gems here. Something that I really love that I want to highlight for the audience up front is that when you talked about building out your crew, number one, you look for the resources around you of who were you already in contact with or who did you know from school? And I think a lot of times as entrepreneurs, you uh, reach outside of your network before you even look in the spaces around you and then the second thing was was that you anticipated the no that you knew that people were going to say no and i find that so many people especially in creative spaces are really discouraged when people around them don't believe in what it is that they're building or don't come along for what it is that they're building in their business or in their particular project and so i think something great that you you've shared just now is really anticipating the no and i think even moving to your last point about being fast and being accurate and how that's really helped you both in filmmaking for a, from a documentary standpoint of making sure that you're correctly reflecting something from a fair and accurate point of view. And the same thing is true of journalism that you wanna be fair and you wanna be accurate as much as you need to be fast because of how quickly cycles moved. And I know that the news coverage and media coverage is something that is really alluring to a lot of entrepreneurs. I know that even my practice has grown substantially because of the publications that I've been in or that I featured in or that I wrote for and people Googling something else or looking for something else have somehow stumbled upon my name. And so the question I wanna ask you is, in your experience, what makes something newsworthy? What makes um, something worth talking about from a journalistic standpoint? That's a good question. As I get ready to pitch my edit at the New York Times as we get off the conversation. Uh, all right, so newsworthy. Any, there's three key things about newsworthy. One, know your audience, right? Like, I can't say this enough. Like, say you're in the business space, the entrepreneurial space. A lot of it has to do with entertainment. I'm not gonna pitch you a story about like an Arctic oil spill, right? So the first thing is know your audience. Um, and that's about for entrepreneurs, if you're trying to pitch your company, know, the second thing is know your audience, right? So your audience, and I mean the audience that you already have or the audience that you're going after, right? So if that audience is essentially other entrepreneurs, you need to know that, right? Um, then the other one is know the publication. So like the New York Times is the, this is a whole other side, but the New York Times is the, the United States paper record, meaning that everything in the New York archives, good or bad, New York Times archived, good or bad, since it's open, been open since the 1800s. So you can go back as far as you want to. It is the United States paper record because it's one of the oldest and most continuous. So if you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to pitch something to the New York Times with a startup, they're probably not going to pick that up because of what it means, right? There's a reason why Donald Trump and, and, and Joe Biden want to be in the Times because they know when their grandkids go, that's gonna be an actual thing of merit. So a big paper like the Times is not gonna cover your, uh, your upstart company or your new rapper just because you haven't done anything significant. Um, the third thing is you wanna pitch to the writer and not necessarily like pitch to your personal interest, right? If you have a business, you wanna pitch to people who are already business writers. So if you know someone who is writing about Black female entrepreneurs, you find every single person, you can do a general Google search about Black female entrepreneurs, African-American women entrepreneurs, Nigerian women entrepreneurs, figure out who's doing the, the, the writing on that and pitch them because they're likely the ones who are going to pitch it to an editor to get your story. So that's what I would say. And what, what makes it newsworthy is um, specifically, is it topical, right? And is it timely? So is, again, the first three things I told you all, all related to topical, 
And then there's obviously time. So we're close to Christmas. So like pitching your story about your new business right now, like nobody's going to take that pitch. I promise you this right now. You pitch your business right now, they're not going to answer that email. So again, topical, the first three things we talked about, and then timely. Here's a different angle of a very similar question, staying on track with journalism. Sometimes as entrepreneurs, uh, I think that there's a huge push for thought leadership and this will, I'll go from this and then we can actually move into the clubhouse conversation where there's a huge push for thought leadership and you want to be seen not only as an entrepreneur, but also as a thought leader in a particular industry that your business may be in. And so from time to time in these articles, whether it's the Times or Wall Street Journal or, you know, whatever it is, they are quoting people when it comes to specific topics. How, when you are writing an article about the COVID vaccine or gentrification or the Georgia runoff election, how are you selecting the thought leaders in a particular topic to get a quote from? Okay, yeah, so there's two ways to look at it. One is if, if that writer is already familiar, right? So a lot of times that if that author is familiar, what they will do typically is they already know the subject matter, so they kind of know who the movers and shakers are already. But most times not the second thing happens, which is they're going to do a general search right so they're going to do a search on social they're going to do a search on youtube they're going to do a search on podcasts they're going to do a search and other writers this other thing they're going to research other writers who've written about their topic so if they're talking about gentrification in atlanta they're going to want to read other publications about gentrification already to kind of help inform them and give them a little bit of like a leg up and so if you're and that's the unfortunate thing about if you're trying to get in a thought leader space sometimes they won't necessarily see you in those publications like they won't see you in the journal they won't see you in the times but if you started this is where i think the, the the social space has changed which is you probably need to start creating your own content right or you need to start getting yourself in those positions to do conferences when they were existing and things like that and thought leadership i would say this if you're a thought leader on again we'll just use gentrification because you mentioned that and like let's say you're not getting any love from your local press or the national press about gentrification the two things you can do is you use your social feeds to build out content for yourself and then let's say you have a little bit more savvy you have access to somebody who has more savvy you start producing your digital content, whether it be your podcast or a newsletter or something like that to get your thought leadership out there because when it is time to start coming back what's going to happen is if you start to get more of an audience on social or sometimes if you just simply over index by showing up in search results they'll likely talk to you now because, okay, this guy, he's writing about gentrification, he's tweeting about gentrification for the last six months, I need to talk to him. Uh, and so that's the reality of how it goes. And it's like kind of unfortunate, I think a lot of thought leaders just assume that, hey, I'm a CEO, I'm an executive, that somebody should just want to talk to me. And the reality that that journalist isn't looking for you, they're looking to cover that story. And typically that story that they, they got to cover from the initial, hey, I need you to cover the stories that need to be out can be anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. So they got to make a quick decision really fast. So wow. that is having like volume content to kind of like even be searchable. I love that. Okay. I think that those are really good tidbits. Bits. And so as you talk about um, creating your own content and using a lot of these social spaces, I do want to transition us into a conversation about Clubhouse. Um, and so for those of you who are unaware and in the dark, 
Clubhouse is a social platform that launched earlier this year. It is an invite-only audio drop-in. If you would like to imagine a 1990s AOL or Yahoo chat room where you can scroll any amount of topics and click to join a chat room. And once you join the chat room, instead of seeing a scroll of text to go by, you just hear voices and it is all live. It is supposed to be unrecorded and it just happens in the minute and in, in the actual moment. And I see, I've been on Clubhouse now for about a month and a half. And I see that a lot of entrepreneurs are having the conversation about how to monetize it, but they're also using it to quote unquote, become thought leaders in um, various spaces. So I, I definitely want to get your take on, on Clubhouse and the type of space that you think it will create. Okay, so the Clubhousing is generally fascinating to me. Um, but I, I wanna stick, stick on the thought leadership part of the first and then go into monetization second. I think the thought leadership part is interesting because speaking as a black entrepreneur or someone who's in black spaces, the people who are becoming black thought leaders on Clubhouse, I think is interesting because it kind of echoes what happened on Twitter and in a lot of ways, um, in the sense that people, it's not even marginalized voices, that people who have managed to either A, gather a large following on Clubhouse or B, manage to constantly say something meaningful are starting to scale up really fast or memorable. And so that is very interesting, but Clubhouse for a whole host of reasons, like the functionality and the ability to like, get data is not really great right now. So you really can't find anyone. And I think that's actually why it's successful is because there's not a lot of available data for public use that you have to always be constantly listening. Like when you have something, okay, okay, Shay is doing so I got to actually physically go in, check my app, check the notifications, see what Shay is talking about and listen. I can't do anything else. I can't be distracted. And so if I want to hear your next voice again, I have to literally like follow, search and do all of that. And I think the thought leadership part of it is I don't think the people who are thought leaders on Clubhouse are really converting that over to their offline thing, which I think is the thing they should be doing now. So if you have like that podcast, that newsletter, that business, you need to be starting to pivot immediately to get more of that market share. Uh, and that goes into the monetization part of it, which is, I think that Clubhouse, like everything else is going to essentially go into two places with their business model, which is they're going to have ad levels, you know, for, again, every social media platform is an ad platform. And the other is, I think, for super monetization, which is this notion of private spaces, paid private spaces. I think that that's a model for them to take. But on the user side, I think that Clubhouse is really interesting is that besides just trying to funnel people to where you're going, I think that Clubhouse has a really good way to potentially move dollars into another location. And what I mean by that is the novelty of Clubhouse right now is that everyday people can talk to either celebrities, entrepreneurs, people they they couldn't even on Twitter, like there's a real voice to voice interaction. If I'm that person, I would be starting to figure out how do I pitch my business? How do I secure deposits for my business or my initiative with these people who I want to talk to? You could probably be in a clubhouse room with Bill Gates and there's no restrictions. So that is the thing that's really interesting to me. And I think that that's going to be the next level is people trying to like secure the bag through clubhouse. And I think that that's going to be where it gets really weird. But I also think that's like the future of where this is going. That's really interesting. I, <clears throat> for good or bad, I, the very same points that you have made, I actually see the opposite end of the spectrum. And so, for example, 
in the limited ab- availability to search versus when I first got on Clubhouse versus the updates now of where you could originally see every conversation that was happening in the hallway. And via that, I am now following and have notifications on for people in discussions I w- would have not been privy to, would have never thought to join, just did not cross my mind. However, now with a lot of the various updates, they're almost forcing me to follow people that I already follow on other platforms or they're mostly other black people. And it's creating like my hallway is almost all black even though my entire follower list is completely diverse. And I am like having to proactively search for more diverse conversations because they are creating things that they think I'm interested in based on who's following me or who are on my other list. And I think something that was really alluring to me in the beginning about Clubhouse was that it was completely different than the things I was seeing on other feeds. It was completely different conversations than the ones that I was having on any other platforms. And I'm finding that some of the people who have become quote unquote thought leaders on Clubhouse or who have amassed huge followings are people who say things that are not necessarily meaningful, but to your point, just memorable, i.e. controversial. Um, That they are are really spicy. They are your new snippets. Um, And I think that that's creating difficulty in the space because to your point, the day that um, Tony Shea died, um, Keith Ferrazzi joined Clubhouse. And via the fact that we are following each other on Twitter, I don't know him in real life, we're just following each other on Twitter, I got a notification and it was like, Keith Ferrazzi just joined um, Clubhouse, do you want to welcome him? And he's, for those who don't know, Keith Ferrazzi has written a book called Never Eat Alone that is one of my all-time favorite books. I gift it out all the time, but he's a huge thought leader, just phenomenal man. So anyway, he's like, great. Thank you for, you know, welcoming me onto this app, but my friend died today. I'm really sad about it. I would really like to create a space to talk about it. At the time, I had no idea who Tony Shea was. He And he was just like, my friend died today. I want to talk about it. Will you guys start a room with me about it? I'm like, okay, cool. I end up in this room for almost like three, four hours. And it's like the CEO of this and the CEO of that. And like this billionaire. And it was like all these people sharing these really great, funny stories about how awesome of a person you know, this guy was. And so to your point, there are some mega players that I would have never had access to, would have never known. And we're now connected via just being in that space on Clubhouse. And I feel like that's now getting lost in the shuffle of this new algorithm that they're creating. You know, okay, I want to talk about the algorithm part of it, because there's two things that cross my mind about the algorithm. One is much darker, so we'll start with something much lighter. the, the much lighter part about it is I think that this is what's happening on every social media platform, which is like the echo chambers of, of similarity. And I think that it doesn't matter where we are, no matter where we go on now, we starting to develop these kind of digital echo chambers. And I think that that was, I agree with you. With Clubhouse, that has been the thing that's always been alluring to me. And I think that now the echo chamber effect is because we're Black and we're, we follow other Black people, I think that 
for some reason, just like the algorithm of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that do the same thing. I wanted to know if that's just simply corralling us into one location while those things are still happening. Or is there a thing where those people are just either leaving or having their own private chats? You know what I mean? Like I'm generally interested in, in what that is because maybe that could be the thing. Maybe we're just talking to each other loudly and we're just forgetting about the other stuff. You know what I mean? So, and then the darker end of it is it gets into Facebook. What happens when you have echo chambers that are unregulated, unvetted, and open to anyone and we've kind of seen i don't this is not the podcast for that so i don't want to bring that up but how devastating facebook has become to terms of like weaponization of not just white nationalists right but i think one of the things is everyone kind of got on facebook about four years ago when they we realized that it was being used as a platform to incite violence and hatred amongst democrats republicans liberals and conservatives right but now understanding the real damage was happening in these echo chambers outside of the US, particularly in Myanmar, Rhodesia, where people legitimately were getting flamed, inflamed by violence and rhetoric within these small Facebook groups that kept growing and growing and growing, unchecked and unregulated. And then people in the sense of Myanmar, Myanmar has an ongoing genocide campaign, something that when Zuckerberg steps down, he'd probably be tried for like a war crime on that, right? So that's like the darker end of the spectrum of these echo chambers. And Clubhouse kind of reminds me of that thing in the sense that it's very unregulated anything goes like to your point like people shouldn't be recording stuff but people do and so it's kind of like the wild wild west right now and i'd be interested to see how that changes like a year from now so i think that brings me to the next portion of what i wanted to talk about and so i have a segment on the show that I call the social minute and on the social minute is where I like to encourage my listeners to make an impact, not only in their business, but in the community and the world around them. And when you brought up the, kind of the division between liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats right now, we're both in the state of Georgia and we are in the midst of a very, very heated and very important Senate runoff um, election. And so I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the organizing that um, you have been doing over the course of what I feel like is like a calendar year. <laughs> it feels like it, at least, if not more. Um, but yeah, tell me about the work that you're doing and how people can support you and what you have going on. Yeah, so I do a thing called Pizza to the Polls. It's not really like the main Pizza to the Polls. And the reason why I did that is because Pizza to the Polls actually stopped delivering in Atlanta, um, I think after 2016 or so. So they just stopped doing it. Um, it's an initiative that I've been doing for the last three electoral cycles. Wow. Anyway, this, that feels so wild to even say that. But it's pretty simple. Uh, not high art here. Me, I put, get some people up. I put out my Venmo, my cash app, whatever. Hey, we're going to these polling locations. As you guys know, Georgia has had some real issues with getting people to vote. A lot of that's just intentional. So it's just like getting people pizza, water, snacks, please stay in line, uh, information they needed, but it's pretty simple, straight to the point. Um, this year has been a much bigger year, as you guys saw back in June. June was the thing that really, really got myself and a lot of people motivated. Um, I did that in June, especially because I was actually out. There's a, a woman named B. When she actually took over Stacey Abrams' seat in the house, and that's a buddy of mine. And so I was out there on the day of her election out in June, you know, just holding up signs like, hey, go vote for B, go, you know, yada, yada. There's a woman who pulled up in the car, a uh, black woman. She lives on my side of town, like the east side of town. And so 
if anybody who doesn't know Atlanta, say your guest, East Atlanta and Decatur, like there's like this weird, you know this, but there's like this weird part where they're, they're one and the same, like one street is Atlanta, one part is Decatur, it's just kind of whatever. But I didn't realize she was in a wheelchair, right? So she pulls up in the car, she's like, hey man, they've been giving me the runaround. I don't know where to go. And she, you can tell she was frustrated, like she's about to crash. She's like, I just want to go vote. And I don't want to, she's like, I don't want to have to wait for four hours and line up in my chair and I don't have a place to park. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'm, you know, I just stopped volunteering for beasting at the time. And I was like, hey, I'm going to find your location. So it took a while. People at the polling place weren't being super responsive, super help, uh, helpful. Found her place uh, and got her right, you know? But like, that was the thing. And I was like, there were still people in line. So I just put it out on Twitter, put it out on Instagram. Hey, man, this is my cash up. I'm giving pizza to people at the polls. And then people started giving me money. And then uh, some people I went to college with, they were like, hey, we're down. Let's go. We know the location. People legit just showing us like things on Twitter. Hey, we're at this location. I gave them a number. Hey, we're at this location. Can you please come? And that was it. Um, and so it's been going strong now. And now we're in the runoff. And the runoff has been interesting because uh, right now the lines have not been long except for two counties, Cobb and Gwinnett. Uh, Gwinnett is soon to be the largest county. It's our most diverse county in the state. Um, it's a lot of Latinos, a lot of Asians, a lot of Arabs, uh, a lot of older whites. There is a decent African-American population there. And then Cobb County. And Cobb County has its own history of just of not being very friendly to Blacks, but they essentially shut down all the early rolling locations in Cobb County outside of one place. And so right now, the Cobb vote is slightly depressed because of that very reason. And so me and my crew, we go out to Cobb all the time. I'm going out to Cobb again tomorrow um, to just like go to the location, get people, people uh, water and stuff like that. Because it's wintertime, most people just want muffins and like, you know, uh, donuts and stuff like that. But if people want to donate, they can always hit me up on Cash App or Venmo. It's um, at I am King Williams or I am King Williams dollar sign on Cash App. But that's pretty much what we do. It's nothing crazy. Um, we just go make sure people stay in line. We do most of our work now in Cobb and Gwinnett and like South Fulton. And it's a, it's a good experience. And so hopefully January 5th, I get the result I would like to see. And hopefully we get the result we would like to see. I'm not going to say because I don't know who your listeners are, but there's a particular party I would like to win. Um, and so we'll see how it goes. I am a nonpartisan podcast. Um, <laughs> um, so how many, um, I think the, the work you're doing is amazing. It's, I think that there are so many layers and complexities to voter turnout, voter engagement, and the voting process here in Atlanta that being discouraged due to long lines or literally having to go back to work or to your point, just being hungry and, and, and potentially passing out while in line only just add to the institutional complexities of the political process here. Via pizza to the polls, how many people do you think that you've serviced? It's in the thousands. I honestly don't know. That like that's my straight answer. It's in the thousands. I just honestly don't know. You gotta measure your impact. I'm all I'm all about the data. You got to measure your impact. <laughs> I should. Uh, I just don't know. Here's the thing, though. It's not. It's in the thousands, but it's probably bigger for a different reason. Um, one of the things we do with pizza to the polls every time after every elect. Like now, this is the third time doing it. We donate our food directly to people on the street, right? So like me and my partner, Dan, we legit, after it's over, when everybody else is done, we hit up every hot spot in Atlanta donating food. So like in that last one back in November, we might've given out hundreds of pizzas, like just straight up to people on the street. So like there's that level of it where I don't even know how many people we hit on that end. 
and then going to shelters, then going to Hosea Feed the Homeless, where we donate our food and our money when it's left over. So it's definitely in the thousands. Um, and not just in the thousands of people in the voting lines, but also the people who are either homeless or people in the shelter. So I, I honestly have no idea. Okay, well, that is a great caveat to add for people who are interested in contributing that you can know that regardless of whether or not the lines are long and there is a need for this, that any donations that you make are going towards a good cause, whether it's Hosea Feed the Hungry or um, those who are experiencing homelessness throughout Atlanta. So I want to thank you for what you are doing. I will put King's um, information in the show notes if you are interested in giving uh, towards pizza to the polls. And this has been this week's Social Minute. which leads us to the last section of the show, my favorite part of the show, Minute of Time in History, Living or Dead, King, Living or Dead. If you could have a minute of time with anyone and do anything, who would you spend a minute of time with and what would you do? It's easy, it would be Jesus, but... um... That would be it, just straight up, Jesus. But I would say in modern history, it would, honestly, this is going to sound strange. So hear me out. And I've thought about this, I listen to your podcast all the time, so I want to name four. But first, straight up, Jesus, the son of the guy, I want to talk to him, because I have one minute. Um, if it's a Black person, I actually want to talk to Fannie Lou Hamer for one minute. Mm because she's the goat of organizing. If I can get one minute of her knowledge on that one. The next person, if I could talk to for one minute of their time, I'm just, I, this is, I'm just taking over your show. I'm sorry. Look take one minute of their time would be interesting. I would actually talk to Steve Jobs. I would ask him, but not for what people think about, like not about Apple, not about the products and all of that. I would just ask him in one minute, did he realize the impact that people would have in terms of almost like this deity like worship on them so that's what i would want to like talk to them about for like one minute so those three people i think will be interesting to talk to well okay well i will say this is so funny because uh today's episode that i literally just released on the 21st was the very first guest that i've ever had that said jesus and now you're the second um and so <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, those are really cool. I was listening to NPR yesterday and they were having a conversation with a legislator from Mississippi um, Mm -hmm. about Roe v. Wade and of course brought up Fannie Lou and how they were utilizing, how they were interweaving um, the civil rights story into um, like pro-abortion, like arguments, um, states' rights arguments. And uh, it was a very lively discussion to say, to say the very least. Um, very cool. Well, I want to thank you for your time today. Can you please, we talked about a lot. You talked about, um, Sarasota and the Times. I know you have your own newsletter. You have your own podcast. You have um, the documentary series that will be re-released and the book releasing in 2021. Can you please share the details of all of that and how people can find you and support those things? 
Uh, if you want to know about anything, reach out to me on social media at I am King Williams. So I do reply. Just hit me up on I am King Williams. Um, if you would like to listen to local Atlanta news from me, um, starting today will be on Local Plus. So L O C O Plus. So plus sign or L O C O P L U S um, dot com. It's on all social media channels at Local Plus as well. And if you would like to find out more about the Atlanta Way, you can follow on Twitter and Instagram at the Atlanta Way when it comes out later on uh, in 2021 about the documentary on gentrification. So, Awesome. Yep. Thank you so much for being on the show today. No, thank you for having me, Shay. Thank you. I want to thank King again for coming on and sharing his journey in the episode where I talk about multiple passions making sense. And I use the case study of Issa Rae. I talk about catching L's. I talk about the zigzags of the path, but ultimately each of the previous positions that you're in line you up for where you need to be. And King is just yet another great example of that, how he utilized the resources and people around him while still at college to get the crew of individuals that would help him work on his first project, utilizing the internship with Spike Lee, not just for the creative aspect of it or the directing aspect of it, but to understand the actual workings of the behind the scenes business foundations that you need in order to be a filmmaker on any level and just really honing down and sharpening those skills in his time with Sarah Burns and how even utilizing those skills from being accurate and fast in putting together your films and when you're documenting history to translating that over now into a viable career in journalism and as an author. And I hope that this was inspiring for someone who's wondering if where they are right now on their journey makes sense or if they are somewhere on their journey that is unanticipated, how can you make the most of it so that when you do get back on track for whatever it is that you're planning from an entrepreneur standpoint, that you have the skills you need in order to make it a success. The gems regarding making yourself a thought leader, making you and your business newsworthy were really great. And I hope someone who is looking to move into that thought leadership expert space and media spaces in 2021 found that of you. I hope that if your heartstrings were pulled towards pizza to the polls and assisting in the final stretch of the Georgia Senate race that you contribute to the efforts, the organizing efforts that King has put together. And of course, I just want to thank you for listening, for subscribing, for sharing. There are so many of you who have sent messages, DMs, emails, and told me how much you enjoy this content. And I just look forward to making these episodes because I know that you guys enjoy them. You find them useful. Please let me know the topics you would like to see into the next year. You can always reach me on social media at Shea M. Lawson. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at M-O-Y-T podcast. You can also leave voice messages at anchor.m.fm backslash minute of your time. And until next time, I am Shay and Lawson, and this has been Minute of Your Time.